From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. Uh, this is the VinePair Podcast. Uh, Joanna's out sick. That's such a bummer. Yeah. Such a bummer. I feel yeah. like last week, too, I wasn't here. It's like, you know, when are we going to get the gang back together? <laughs> Perhaps at our upcoming live show. We don't have one yet, Zach. I know. I know. But we're in the... But one might, one might, one might be in the works. One might be in the works. I'm manifesting. Stay tuned. tuned. One might be in the works. Uh, But before we get into today's topic, because we do have a guest for today's topic, uh, it won't just be Zach and I, you know, going back and forth on a Friday, because you know we want you to start the weekend right, not in the wrong (laughs) way, which would be if it's just Zach and I talking. So, um, but before we do get into that and bring our our guest on, uh, Zach, what have you been reading on the site this week? Well, you know, appropriately enough, the thing I wanted to talk about is something that our guest wrote, um, which oh, is not really going to be the topic of conversation. Fuck away as to who the guest is. Well, you know, it's going to be in the show description. Anyone who cares to know, we'll figure it out. But anyhow, uh, yeah, I read uh, Hannah's piece about cool climate American Syrah, uh, ah. subject that I am quite passionate about too. So it was always fun to read. Um, you know, someone who shares the the general enthusiasm for Syrah as a variety, and in particular for these um, Syrahs hailing from from sites, particularly on the West Coast, that have a, you know, just kind of produce a style of Syrah that is less sort of jammy, fruit-driven, the sort of um, big, bold Syrahs that I think have at times been more prominent or popular, especially when it comes to um, American or New World Syrah, and, and more kind of... Uh, high toned or, or earthy, yeah, yeah, yeah. meaty, etc. So yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm not going to spend a lot of the episode time talking about this with Hannah, but I do think that the 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 question posed in the piece about whether there is a will there ever be a big enough market for these wines to make them really economically viable as more than sort of uh, to a relatively small cadre of the converted or just, you know, kind of for winemakers who are particularly passionate about the variety is an open one. I I think there's reasons to be enthusiastic. I think the success of the growing interest in and success of Syrah from the Northern Rhone in France is a pretty good gateway to a lot of these wines for, for people. And so, yeah, I think there's, there's plenty of potential um, in part because I think one of the things that comes out through this piece and just in talking about the history of Syrah in America is it's relatively new on the landscape, um, you know, really has only been planted in any meaningful quantity for 40 odd years. And in, in most cases, quite a bit less than that. So we have a lot to discover about where it grows best, how to best make it uh, kind of up and down the West Coast and even on the East Coast, too. And so I think that is that is exciting that, you know, the, the best may still be in front of us. How about you? What have you been reading? So uh, the piece I want to talk about today is one by Robert Simonson, which is about the cocktail revolution that has finally reached New York's great cultural institutions. And the reason I wanted to talk about this one is because I used to work at one of uh, New York's great cultural institutions. It was my first job here in the city working at for the Brooklyn Philharmonic and the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And I think what he talks about in this piece is really true. You know, during that time... There were great cocktail bars in the city, right? Death and Co. Uh, Milk and Honey before it changed to Attaboy, but the cocktail renaissance had already happened. It was there, but at these cultural institutions, especially like I I love the quote he says in the piece about Broadway theater still kind of being crappy. Um, Mm -hmm. The drinks were not even acceptable; they were downright horrific. Um, And the fact that now all of a sudden, I think all of these cultural institutions investing in top bar programs and having those bar programs run by 
talent from some of the best bars in the city just speaks to the moment we're in in terms of like cocktail being king and consumers really understanding what a good drink is and expecting that good drink out. And what he's also seen is that that, you know, sort of high-end cocktail movement is also bringing along with it better wines and beers sold at these bars as well, um, which I think is really great because, look, you you would assume great wine was a thing in New York far far ahead of um, great cocktails, but even still, like, at these places, no one really served great wine, right? There was a few, I think, openings I went to at the Met a long time ago where, like, old Behringer was served at, you know, or uh, sometimes they would they would serve champagne. But for the most part, you were served the same kind of, like, what we would call gallery wines that you would be served at a gallery for Starving Harvest on the Lower East Side. No yeah. one uh, was trying to up their game. And these are places where, like, I think we're trying to see people not only want to go to see a show, look at the art, et cetera, but also hang out. Um, and it keeps people there longer. It makes you more of a draw. It also actually is really a, a huge boon for the neighborhood because a lot of times you're – the destination that also has the best bar. Um, one of the ones that's really cr- cool to see too is, is the bar that's open in Moynihan Train Hall, which is um, from the the owners of um, Dead Rabbit. So again, I think it just speaks to the moment that we're in that people really care about good drinks and with cocktails being the thing they care about the most, but then cocktails being you know the leader pushing the drinks to get better across the board at all these places. So uh, really, really fun piece and and fun for me to read because as a New Yorker, I appreciate when the drinks get better. Yeah, and I wonder, Adam, actually on this point, as I was reading this piece uh, earlier today, actually I was thinking about this, do you think that – so I, I, my conjecture that uh, on this is that part of what's driving it is not just the sort of, oh, these bu- these businesses have finally realized that their clientele wants better drinks. I think that's yeah. definitely part of it. But I think part of it too is a recognition that people will no longer – like this is similar, but I think a distinction won't – settle for shitty drinks like they won't drink unless you give them a drink that is commensurate with their expectation in a way that I think 10, 15, 20 years ago in a lot of these settings, if you're the kind of person who wanted to have a cocktail or whatever, something to drink when you went to a Broadway show or the the opera or whatever, you were just going to do it, whatever the offerings were. And now I think a lot of people might opt just like, hey, I'm going to just have water or I'm going to have something else and I'm just going to you know keep my powder dry, so to speak, and not worry about – like not have it unless it – really feels like the kind of thing I want to be consuming. Yeah, I think, you know, especially when you think about it now with, with time, with, with everything else that's um, sort of grabbing your attention at the same time when you go to, especially let's, let's, let's take something like the Met or Museum out of the equation and talk about Lincoln Center and you're going to see the Philharmonic, right? And there's a, there's a break and you have the intermission. There's a lot of other things you want to accomplish during that intermission. Maybe it's go wait in line yeah. in the bathroom. Uh, but it's also now scrolling social media, checking with friends, et cetera. Like, are you also giving time to wait in that line for drinks? And I think what they're realizing is if the drinks are good, people will. And if yeah. they won't, they're, they're just happy standing outside or sitting along the railing or whatever and getting on their phones. And yeah. uh, another institution that he doesn't talk about in this article but has just announced that they're doing the same thing as Carnegie Hall. So they're redoing their entire cafe, much higher-end food and much higher-end drinks and much higher-end wine. Again, because – I think your point is 100% spot on. If you have the great offerings, then people are willing to look at it. Whereas I was at Carnegie Hall um, about six or seven months ago uh, to see a a performance and like nobody was in the cafe. Yeah. Because why would you be? Like I walked in to look at the menu and it was like really gross sort of box salads, which again, I don't know if eating a salad at intermission. Like also just seems very (laughs) weird to me. But then, you know, 
like damp looking sandwiches and yeah. shitty drinks. And you know, it's it's like if I want to drink like that, I'll just go to an an airport bar. I was gonna say, you know what I mean? If you can drink better at an airport than you can at like an actual. Or on an airplane, frankly, better yeah. than you can at some of these institutions. That is a bad sign, and 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 good on them for getting with the times. Yeah, and especially in a city like New York or Seattle, et cetera, where there are such great bars and restaurants, like the the establishment should meet those, or just don't do it. Yeah, you know. Uh, so today's topic is going to be a fun one. Yeah. Uh, th- just to be fair to our guest, it was proposed by her, uh, but Hannah. Uh, who most of you know has been on the podcast before, and you just talked about her your, her articles. Everyone should have known. Um, Hannah Staub, our um, one of our great editors here at Vine Pair, approached me yesterday actually and was like, "Hey, I want to talk about this piece that ran in another publication. We don't need to name. Uh, kind of making fun of food influencers and saying that they ruin everything." And she was like, "I would like to come on and talk about that piece and defend influencers." Uh, and I said, sure, because I have my own opinions, not so much about food influencers, about, but about drinks influencers. Uh, so I thought we could have a really fun conversation. And Hannah, you are somewhat of a influencer yourself. Uh, when it comes to food, uh, you have a great Instagram where you go, you go dining. But I also think that you do it differently. But we're going to talk about all that. But so, Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And thanks, Zach, for shouting out my Syrah piece. Oh, you're welcome. So, Hannah, tell us about this piece and, like, what pissed you off. Um, yeah, it was definitely a little triggering for me. Um, <laughs> so it published last week. Um, you don't have to say the public. You can say I don't care if you say the publication. Okay, it was in Eater, and um, it was titled "Food Influencers Just Found Out About Manhattan's Popular Golden Diner." And for context, Golden Diner is a restaurant in Two Bridges, the neighborhood downtown in Manhattan. That this restaurant opened in 2019, and it has like very elevated takes on classic diner foods. And also, that it's been everywhere forever. Yeah. To be fair. So yeah. So basically, they've always been known for their chicken katsu club and like the honey butter pancakes. But apparently, they recently went like extra viral. And now, even though the restaurant has always been pretty difficult to get into, like there's always been a wait on the weekends for brunch. Apparently, now there's like two hour long waits for lunch on a Monday. Um, so good for the owners, by the way. Well. I guess we'll see. Um, <laughs> I just felt like the whole attitude of the article was very snarky and negative towards influencers, which is nothing against that publication because I think a lot of people have the same attitude attitude towards the topic. Like I know that you've talked about food influencers mm-hmm. and wine influencers on this podcast before with like a little bit of a negative tone. Oh, a little <laughs> bit, maybe a lot of it. Yeah. So I just wanted to use this like prompt to bring up the topic again, but this time like I'll be here to, you know, represent the influencer. <laughs> so let's be, so so why don't you break it down first for people like you you are not an influencer in the same way, right? You do not do you make money from your posts? Not now I've been offered. Okay. And you are employed full-time by Vinepair. Yeah. Right. So you're more of a hobbyist influencer if we if you will, correct? Yes, but a lot of it starts for people as like hobbyist influencing, I feel like it just so happens that I only have 6,000 followers where a lot of people, it seems to blow up and they happen to have more followers, even would though you, they started in the exact same way. Would you want it to be your career? No. <laughs> right. Okay. And I also think that for those that don't follow you, it's all things food underscore NYC, right? Yeah. There's a lot of underscores throughout the whole thing. Okay. All <laughs> things food NYC, search for it. But I think, you know, to to bring our listeners up to speed, you take very thoughtful takes on the restaurants and the food and you you ba- I would say for you and this is my beef against most influencers most influencers 
don't do what you do. And I think it's it's interesting you would call yourself an influencer. I would just call you a restaurant uh, evangelist or a, a, <laughs> or what an old term a foodie, right? Yeah. Because you you actually analyze the dishes from a very thoughtful pers- from a very thoughtful place in the way that maybe a critic would. You're never negative. And also, I don't see you go to a lot of the really buzzy restaurants that clearly are influencer bait, right? Like, I don't think you've been to Dirty Roman. Or what's it called? Bad Roman? I have been to Bad Roman. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> you didn't post about it, or did you? I did, and I'm going to Coca Duck tonight. Oh, my God. Okay, <laughs> never mind. Well, uh, I take everything I just said nice about Hannah back. But um, I-, I would say that, like, the biggest beef that I have, and I am i don't know what Zach thinks, and I'll let, we'll let him weigh in, and then, and then we'll go at this, Hannah, is I think a lot of it feels very forced. A lot of it is paid and is not dec- disclosed. And a lot of it comes from a place where the beef that most people in the industry have with influencers, whether it's food or drink, is it comes from a place of very little education or understanding before they are either very positive about something or very negative. And like what I think from a journalist's perspective is frustrating is that like we go to school for our craft we learn about checking our sources we learn about you know 100 fact checking about how to craft the story about doing our research about talking to multiple people and really making sure that everything is perfect before we publish and i think oftentimes what happens with influencers is like a a review or something pops up right after they've been they can be extremely positive very quickly without any real reason for why they don't compare it to any other place and a lot of that in the post also sometimes has to do with just like them being taken care of, them getting something for free, them getting to taste something, them being flown to Napa. And like the only reason they like these three wineries is because those are the three wineries that put them up and like took care of them and often is never disclosed. Whereas at least in, in at our publication and at publications like the Times Letter that we aspire to be like, we have very clear ethics policies. So that's actually my, my issue with influencers actually isn't. Influencer. I don't hate the idea of influencers. I hate the idea that influencers don't have a code of ethics. And I recognize that there are other publications in our space that also don't have that code of ethics. I would 100% recognize that. But that's what bothers me. I do think and agree with you that the Eater piece was shitty. Because I don't think that that perspective is helping anyone. And anything that can benefit a restaurant is probably good. I just have an issue with the ethics. But I don't know. Yeah, I think that if a restaurant has a long line outside, uh, like if it was a from a write up in like the New York Times, they would be like over the moon excited yeah. about having a line um, and having the hype around it. But for some reason, we associate like the quality of person that you get from influencers going and like posting about it versus the quality of person you have going to that restaurant because of they saw it on Instagram. Uh, is like a lower quality person, which I think is like a really dangerous way of thinking. Like, let's say Double Chicken Please has a line out the door every day because they were in World 50 Best and got a lot of media attention. So they are a wild success. But if Golden Diner has a line outside the door because someone saw it and they thought it looked delicious on their phones, then they're like not allowed to do that. I don't know. It seems like, um, especially in our current media landscape, a very dangerous way to frame it because social media is going to become more and more a part of the media landscape like legacy media publications are kind of also diving into instagram and understanding it's very important um part of how people are getting their information these days so i think that as maybe the younger generation is getting more of their information on what to buy and where to go and what to drink from 
Instagram and TikTok or whatever social media platform, it's really just a strange thing to ostracize people for getting their information from Instagram and say like, oh, you're the wrong kind of diner. We don't want you yeah. here. Well, and I think this this gets to two of the main cruxes of this, I don't even say debate or just point of conflict. One of them is I believe that a lot of people, whether they are operators or whether they are people who sit outside of the kind of influencer sphere more uh, more generally, the, part of the skepticism perhaps comes out of a belief that influencers themselves and the people they might send to a restaurant or bar are kind of more ephemeral. Like if you get a really yeah. good review in the times, there's a belief. And again, I don't necessarily think this is true. I'm just saying this is how people operate that that's you're made, right? Like you're good. Maybe not forever, but for a long time like that, that review you can hang will resonate it up in your restaurant by the yeah. bathroom. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. You guys know that happens. And, Oh yeah, that the things that people used to do. Yeah, the newspapers that they used to get physically printed and and uh, distributed throughout the the country. In any case, but I think whereas with a with a viral TikTok video or even just a really popular influencer posting about it, I think there is a, a belief. I don't know if it's backed up by data in most cases that once you get the initial pop then they're on to the next thing, and a belief that people who come out because an influencer posted about a place are you know, kind of in the end, sort of always chasing that influencer around, maybe they sort of almost <laughs> secretly dream of like running into them at a restaurant or something like that. But like, there's more of that on to the next mentality. And again, I don't know if there's any truth to that. I think a lot of the people who come into a restaurant because it gets a good review in a in a publication or something like that or lands on the world's 50 best bars are also one-time only kind of people. They're just there to say they've done it. They're there to see it and rarely are going to become yeah, regulars or even does that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think I think the the question the other question that Adam raises and I think is is one where you do see uh, I don't want to say I think where some of the skepticism also comes from is a little bit the sort of lack of, as Adam said, the sort of understood dynamic wherein I think restaurants, the people that operate them, the PR companies that, you know, help promote them, et cetera, and the publications that cover them had for quite a while some kind of understanding. And obviously different publications had different rules and ethics codes and stuff like that. But basically the idea was sort of like, we are going to have a certain amount of journalistic detachment from this. And it means that if you get a good write-up, the people who are reading you or whatever are going to know, generally speaking, that it's because the food or drink or whatever are, at least to the critic's eyes, of quality. And if you don't, it's because they're not. And there's not mm -hmm. money changing hands. There's not free food changing hands. There's not a sort of a, a thing that goes along with that. And I think that for restaurants and bars, the notion of paying an influencer either directly or sort of in comped items or things like that creates more of a, okay, well, now we're looking at this not through a th a thing we where we aspire to be of a certain quality to get the kind of renown, but more mm -hmm. of like, you know, it's it's greasing the wheels for you in a way. And that's not to say it's bad or wrong or that influencers in general aren't, you know, thoughtful about how they position things. But I do think it is important to note when someone doesn't offer – they don't have they don't post negative information that can be valid it can be something's lack of presence on someone's social media feed can be conspicuous in that very absence but 
I do think it is a it is harder in certain ways. Like it's this whole kind of part of this culture of like nothing can ever be you can never be critical of anything. You think about like how now if you give uh, your you know Uber driver or whatever anything other than five stars, it's suddenly a crisis. There's no like room for restaurants to be good at some things and bad at others or a bar to be great at, you know, have some great cocktails and some cocktails that kind of miss the mark. And if the only kind of mode that we can operate in is everything is great all the time, I wonder if that sort of, it just is kind of hard for any place to stand out without some of the other accoutrements that we've talked about, like really flashy cocktail programs or, you know, food that styles really well on camera, but may not eat great or things like that. And it, it creates a sort of world of, I don't want to say artificiality, but it's at least a little bit harder to understand kind of what makes a restaurant pop in that milieu. And it could just be because I'm old. Mm-hmm. And Hannah, you could tell me that, like, actually it's very clear to you, to your followers, to the people you follow, what makes these places stand out. And it is about, you know, all of these experiences. And I just don't get it because, again, old. Well, I I think that's a great point, but I also kind of want to go back to the beginning of what you were saying and what Adam was saying before about like kind of the whole journalist versus influencer debacle of how they're they have very different approaches, which is true. But I think it's very interesting that I mean, journalists do get comped meals a lot and so do influencers. And I think that people think all the time that influencers could be like rude or maybe by not posting about it or by writing something mean about it, they are. Um, I don't know, worse, but I, coming from a background where I've worked um, with restaurants and helped on their PR teams before, there's actually a ton of journalists out there, too, who kind of take advantage of these comped meals and are rude to service staff and um, say they might write something and then don't. Like, it's, there, I don't know if we can necessarily put journalists on so much of a pedestal and say that they are, like, the absolute best like case scenario of press for these restaurants anymore especially since influencers i don't know i think for restaurants to really hit right now you need to get the press coverage and you need to have a social media presence for people to really see it like you need to see it several times in several places to get the name recognition and understand like oh this is a place that i need to go so uh, i think it's important when restaurants are thinking about how to get a following and get people coming in the door they want to think about having quality that will attract maybe larger write-ups and critics, but also having something that will have influencers come in and you really need kind of both of those things now to to be successful. Yeah, I think, look, the biggest thing, the, the biggest takeaway, obviously, right, is that the if, if you think that the majority of your clientele at this point, whether you are a wine producer, you're a bar, you're a restaurant, whatever, reads print publications and doesn't basically look at their phone all the time, you're an idiot. And <laughs> and look, and if that's really the the group of people you're going after, you've been going after that same group for your entire lives, basically. And they're also about to die. So, you know, you, you do have to embrace that there will be people on the platform that are media companies like us, but they're, that are also influencers. And I think that that's an important thing. I do, though, think that what Zach is saying is uh, a valid point, which is that like a lot of the content you see put out there is overly positive, which you're also seeing a backlash to now. I mean, that's the entire reason that they're giving now for the 
the reemergence of the cut as like a very you know popular publication all of a sudden is that it's got snark again and it's mean and it's or not mean but like honest and I think people are kind of sick of the you know basic because look Kobe was a motherfucker and people are like you know what why can't we be honest sometimes and just say the truth whereas prior to COVID right we had that whole movement like if you don't have anything nice to say don't say it at all and I feel like well. I don't have anything nice to say, and I kind of want to say it. <laughs> like, I kind of want to say that this place was a ripoff, or that this drink wasn't very good, and or that this makeup for the cut doesn't work, and is crappy, and is full of all this bullshit. So I think that that's a little bit of the backlash you're seeing against some influencers who are, as Zach's saying, just overly positive. Again, I it's funny because I don't put you in these categories. Um, I think that like there are really high-quality influencers out there, and just like... But who are they? I don't know if I want to like name names, but if, if we're talking about like ones that it, the industry really likes, like people love Food Baby and like Mike Chow. I don't Chow. even know who that is. Like, um, well, he's been around for a long time, Mike Chow. He's like a big. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like the, the industry loves him. If he goes to your restaurant, that's a good thing. But if like someone else goes that they don't like their content as much, then suddenly it's like evil. I don't know. It's It's interesting the difference between the influencers, but I think that like publications, it will start happening where you have influencers that go and they're like known as the reputable ones who really care about the food and care about the restaurants and are thoughtful and nice and tip well and like are nice to service. And when they post about it, it'll mean like a bigger deal than maybe if someone else posted about it, like as similar to as if the New York Times wrote about something versus something like another smaller publication wrote about something. It'll, It'll start kind of I don't know, dividing itself into categories of like more trusted influencers. And I think that being thoughtful and actually having a passion for that topic is an important part of that because you don't really want people just taking pictures of a pancake and not understanding it. That's true. So you what you're saying, Hannah, is we need influencer reviewers. Yes, people who say whether an influencer is good or not. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, I think the the biggest the biggest beef that I hear on the influencer circuit with bar with bartenders influencer bartenders is that the majority of the cocktail influencers on Instagram have never ever worked at a bar and that I completely agree with and understand and think is bullshit and they're the ones now who are convincing you this is the way a cocktail should be made or this is the only way that you should order this cocktail etc and that is very frustrating for bartenders that work very hard. And then to be very honest, like just don't have the fucking time or desire when they finally get off working an actual shift to go on one of these platforms and make drinks. And, you know, that I think is that's a lot of where I see the criticism coming from in our industry is criticism of the, of, of this type of influencer as opposed to the food influencer, or even the bar influencer. I don't I agree with you. I think in any of those, it's the people who are bringing foot traffic to a, a place. So it's fine. It's more the influencer that I think people get very upset about in our industry is the influencer that's kind of spreading misinformation in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, this is the, I mean, have you seen the the thing going around? There's an influencer. It was, it started going viral on TikTok that was saying, if you put a red wine on your skin and it doesn't stain it, it's a bad quality red wine. No, I haven't I mean, seen this that. This is absolute bullshit. I don't even have TikTok. I mean, this is absolute bullshit, right? But this is a big influencer that has been spreading this for the past few weeks, right? Like, yeah. those are the types of things are like that, you know, all Sauvignon Blanc is bad. I'm only saying this because Hannah's about to review a bunch of Sauvignon Blanc for the site. But, like, those are the things that really bother me. If you go and you have a great time at a bar and you want to share it or you didn't have a great time at the bar and you want to warn somebody, 
I'm, I'm a little bit more okay with that. I don't love if you're going to have, if you had a bad time though, at a place and you don't warn the restaurant or bar first. As everyone knows, listens, I'm a big proponent of like, you need to reach out first before you become a dick. But otherwise, I do believe that that's a valid opinion. And like, if people follow you and trust you, great. And then for restaurants and operators, you have to be aware with all of these that it's fleeting, right? There was an amazing article, not about food influencers, but about home cleanliness influencers in the New York Times last week about this thing the pink stuff have you guys seen the pink stuff no so it's it's like it was like a real it's a really tiny brand out of Great Britain that this woman who is a um she's a, all about home cleaning she's an influencer she's a, she was like a new mom one to like clean her new place outside of London and like she got a massive following and she discovered this stuff called the pink stuff at a small local store became a huge proponent that it like could clean anything and it was this tiny brand that's now massive. You can get it on Amazon. It's in Home Depot. Like it, didn't, it wasn't even in the U.S. And what a lot of like really smart people have said now about this, smarter than me in terms of marketing strategy, is like you now need to actually build the brand, right? They can't just rely on the fact that there's all this this huge audience because of her and only investing in her. They now need to invest in like actual brand building and marketing and promotion and going out to other people and getting more press and store displays and all that stuff. And I think that's the same, right? You get a hit from an influencer and it gets you that line. What are you going to do? How do you keep the audience coming back? So they're not there just to say they got the pancake too, right? How do you make them actually regulars? I think that's a very hard thing to do. And it's really hard when a place gets so busy that there's a line and it's hard for you or me to be a regular, right? Like that, even with Miss Otta, as everyone knows, my my favorite restaurant in my neighborhood, like it's always crowded and it's hard for me to be a regular even though I want to because you can't just like the spur of the moment on a Thursday night be like, I'm going to go have Miss Otta because it's already packed. And for most of those, yeah. it's not because of influencers. It's because of publications. Yeah, <laughs> like, like us. Yeah. Like us and because yeah. I talk about it all the time. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and so like it's – it's all very tricky. It's all very tricky. And I see why this was a triggering article. Well, I have yeah. um, kind of a interesting question um, to pose to Please. you. At what point do you think we can blame like the apps themselves and the algorithms instead of the influencers? 100% right now. Because, well, because, so this, this influencer that they tagged in this article, Brian Can't Stop Eating, uh, they basically were saying, like, just found out about Golden Diner, but... I did some sleuthing and scrolled all the way back on his Instagram page through 2020. And he has posted about Golden Diner like maybe seven times in the past four years, like consistently is a regular and a fan of the restaurant. But apparently just now it took off when he posted it the last time. So, But I think you bring up a good point, right? Which is like, which I tried to make at the very beginning. This was lazy journalism because the person who wrote this article should have actually gone back and done their research. And this is something that an editor shouldn't have allowed to publish, right? This is, this, this is something where an editor actually let someone on staff have a beef and publish something without actually doing any fact checking. And that's not good either. That doesn't help anyone. Like the only way that we get through all the bullshit happening in our entire world with misinformation is that people in there, the reason that I, I put journalists on a pedestal is because we're supposed to do our fucking jobs and we're supposed to be trained to do our fucking jobs. And if we don't do our jobs, then we need to be held accountable and you need to write in divine parents and say that we, and we, every time we get someone that writes in that says we got a fact wrong, we correct it. Right. And we really research before we publish and someone at Eater didn't do this and Eater should be held accountable because that's bullshit. I, yeah, I feel like it's not really the influencer's fault. Like, I know a lot of influencers who have been posting about this restaurant for years and years. It's always been, like, a fan favorite, I feel like. Um, so it's funny that I guess maybe TikTok decided now to really push this pancake forward. It's a good-looking pancake. Yeah. I'm <laughs> going is. next week. Really? <laughs> yeah. You're going to wait in line? 
No, I have a reservation. Oh, good. Wait, you can get reservations there? Yeah, for dinner. Ah, uh, that's the move. Mm-hmm. And they still serve the pancake? Mm-hmm. Zach, any parting thoughts? <laughs> well, I like I like seeing the, the – see, that's a clever uh, maneuver there by Hannah. I appreciate yes, that. Um, I mean, Hannah. I think – I think what I would say is I think part, there's this part of it, and I think you know Hannah brought this up. I think it's really important for us to remember that you know for a lot of restaurants there cannot be the kind of pickiness and choosiness over business, right? You can't you can't afford to say, oh well, the crowd that that brings in is the crowd we want, and the crowd that this other source of attention brings in is not who we want. Like very few restaurants have the anywhere near the kind of privilege of being able to be that choosy about who sits in their seats as long as those people pay. Um, and and so I think that in a way you can understand everyone in this kind of uh, situation being drawn to ways of, you know, getting attention and ways of bringing people, you know, guests in the door and everyone's going to continue to experiment. And I think the last thing I'd say is like whether or not the specific framing of this piece is accurate sounds like it's not i do think it's also weird to like criticize or or sort of speak negatively about the idea of influences or, or whomever surfacing restaurants that are not brand new i actually think there should be more done in that regard like it's it sucks that in all elements the only restaurants that tend to get attention bars that get attention in most cases are new or kind of launches right and we've talked a bunch of times on this pod in the past about how hard it is for places to survive past that initial wave of publicity because people are on to the next thing. There's always a new bar, always a new restaurant, something exciting to try. And I think, honestly, whatever draws attention to restaurants that remain vibrant and exciting and enjoyable and might be new to lots of people, even if they are not a brand new opening, is actually great. I think influencers should go to older restaurants and bars more often. I think that would be cool. I think there's lots to find there, lots of great experiences to have, lots of interesting, innovative cuisine to find and drinks to find and stuff like that. And and instead of a publication or people looking at that as like, oh, how have you not heard of this place already? Like, cool, bring up some of the great restaurants throughout New York, Seattle, wherever, and highlight them whether or not they're new. Yeah. I do think it's really interesting. I just went to Golden Diner's website and like they have a literally uh, FAQ about brunch and like answering questions like, why is the wait so long? <laughs> what is the wait process? And, like literally their answer is like, why is the wait so long? Good question. We don't know either. Our best guess is TikTok and brunch is having its heyday. Like, I mean, honestly, it's funny. And the funny thing I was thinking about this though, when you're talking about Golden Diner is like, lived in the East Village for a very long time. Like during this time of, during Saturday and Sunday brunch, Clintry Baking Company, also known for their pancakes, also has a fucking long wait forever. Always. And, and has been written about by everybody. And I mean, yes, now influencers have gone, but like has been around for forever. And guess what? The hack is what Hannah did. You can make a reservation for dinner and you can still get the pancake. So like everyone chill the fuck out. <laughs> uh, all right. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Yeah, thanks. Zach, I will talk to you on Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered 
and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.